This podcast came about when I interviewed Amy Graver and Dr. Aaron Flanagan about Amy's nomination of Dr. Flanagan for the Courageous Provider Award. Dr. Flanagan had been Amy's seven-year-old daughter, Lauren's palliative care doctor. What shines through this conversation most especially for me are two things. First, how Aaron managed seven-year-old Lauren's total pain, her physical pain, and her existential pain and fear of dying. How she saw Lauren for the person that she was, with her hobbies and love of school and music, not a cancer diagnosis. Amy observes, Aaron was managing for today, while the oncologists were managing for tomorrow. And second, how much Lauren, the gifted little worrier that she was, impacted the way that Dr. Flanagan and her team work with children now going forward. This is yet another example of the power of palliative care and the power of that transformative encounter when the parents, child, and clinician are aligned. Courageous Parents Network has the deep conviction that parents and providers of seriously ill children have the same goal, to give children the best possible chances to live their best possible lives. In all that we do, CPN strives to help these parents and providers mutually understand each other, communicate more effectively, and make decisions together. In so doing, CPN strives to improve the course of care, both given and received. I'm Amy Graver, and I'm representing myself and my husband, Dan, today. Dr. Erin Flanagan is here. She is my daughter, Lauren's pediatric palliative doctor. Dr. Flanagan changed our lives. In her approach to Lauren's care, I had never been exposed to palliative care before learning what palliative care meant. I talked to Dan about this, you know, what did Dr. Flanagan mean to us? And he said she was the first doctor to treat Lauren and not her cancer. Dr. Flanagan, if you would introduce yourself and then perhaps respond to what you just heard Amy say. I'm Erin Flanagan. I'm a pediatric palliative care physician, and I have the honor of caring for Lauren Graver from the beginning of her journey all the way until the end. And there's so much about Lauren and her family and their journey that is that is rich to discuss. But what stood out for me at the very beginning was how beautifully Amy and Dan advocated for Lauren and empowered her to advocate for herself in a way that was extraordinary from the very start. And for me, there was the initial clinical aspect of her care that needed immediate attention. That was getting her pain under control. And and that was, in my mind, always the first and foremost goal before you can really embark on learning what that child is all about, what that family is all about. Nothing that you see is real until a child's out of pain. I think so often in our work that therapeutic alliance starts when families see that you can do that. There's often so much fear in being aggressive about getting a child's pain and symptoms under control for many different reasons, but having the experience and the comfort with the medications and the interventions necessary to get her out of pain and in a space where she could feel herself 
that's where I felt like we could really start our relationship. Amy, do you remember thinking nothing matters until this pain is under control? I remember thinking that the diagnosis was so devastating, but then I felt that no one was listening. You could see her writhing in pain on her hospital couch. And I asked for pain meds. I asked her nurses. I asked the residents. I asked the oncology team. And no one would give her anything stronger than Tylenol. And I was like, this can't be. Like, I've had C-sections. I know there's some stuff out there. This can't be. And then somebody said, you're going to see a palliative doctor. I really did not know what that meant. And Aaron walked in and we had been cautioned about pain meds because they were afraid Warren would get, you know, opioid addiction. And Aaron said, we're going to take care of it. I think within hours, for sure, within 24 hours, I had my daughter back. I could talk to her about how we were going to deal with this. There's so much fear, so much confusion, so much worry. And she's a gifted worrier, really gifted worrier. Just getting that pain under control, it brought her back. And then it didn't make it normal, but it made it bearable to see her not in pain. How did you, Erin, engage, if at all, with Lauren directly around her worries? There are many parts to that question. So what I think strikes me about what I learned from Lauren is we try to learn about each child we take care of, and that is I have to know what her cues are and what her language is and anticipate. And I think that's, I mean, Lauren raised the standards for all nine-year-olds. Once we got to know her, we could anticipate and help the nursing staff, help the other providers in the language they would use with Lauren or the, the certain words that we knew that were triggering for her. One word that stands out to me is procedure or surgeries. Lauren was always worried that one, you know, an x-ray or a CT scan would then translate into needing another surgery. Am I remembering that right? At the start, she couldn't discern in the hospital who was coming in and out. She thought that there were going to be surprise surgeries, that every procedure would lead to another one, and that we weren't telling. So that was the first kind of level of language we had to use and learn to use with Lauren. And that is, we would always have to reassure her and kind of frame every new piece of information, every proposed test. This means that we're not going to have a surprise surgery. You're always going to know what's coming next in terms of a surgery or procedure. And even the simplest blood drop, we would always remind her of that. You always explained it and that's what she needed, right? She needed to know what is this for? And what is this going to do? And what is the next step? Lauren wants to know who's on the boat with her and, you know, every detail, what's the boat made out of? How old is the boat? And, you know, like she needs to know every detail and you really honored that for her. You gave her that detail, which she really needed. I felt like sometimes the oncology team was like, oh, she's seven. She's not going to get it. She was getting it. I'll say it again. I mean, Lauren raised the bar for her age group. You know, I came to treat Lauren like she was a adolescent because she was always thinking three steps ahead of us. And I had to always have that in mind when I was proposing something to her or explaining something to her that made me raise my game. You know, I'm not used to doing that for a seven-year-old. Again, it's finding out who that child is from the inside out. 
their past, their present, and then how they're looking at their future. I think learning what brings them joy and learning what brings them comfort also is so hugely important. And with Lauren, even more so, being able to talk to her and relate to her about the important things in her life. I happen to share a love of hockey and that just immediately, I think, endeared me to her. But I think we could have found any number of things that we could have partnered about. Even if I hadn't, just wanting to know about those things about her, I think helps a child trust that you're you're really actually interested in what their life is all about. The other aspect of Lauren's worry that stands out to me were the conversations we started to have as she progressed. And she was worried about dying. And she was worried about being alone. And she was worried about what does it look like? What's it going to feel like? I think that was on her mind probably from the beginning. But we, I think, very proactively started creating a space for her to bring up those thoughts and those fears with her siblings too. You know, I think that that was shared, especially with Emma. Emma and Lauren shared a room and I can only imagine the conversations that those two had. She was remarkable in her willingness to engage about it with a maturity that I just can say that is unique among children her age. It reminded me of the very true statement that Amy said to Lauren that just resonated so deeply. And that is, cancer is not taking your joy away. Your worry is taking your joy away. We're trying our best to manage the cancer. You and you know all of us, let's tackle the worry because that's really gonna steal all the joyful and the hopes and dreams that you have for your life. And so it allowed for the space for Lauren to think of what she wanted to be when she grew up and talk about what she wanted to be when she grew up. And all the dreams and all the ambitions that she had were no less important or poignant. And giving her the space to do that, I felt like it was empowering to her and it kind of gave her a little sense of self-agency back, even though the rest of her life seemed outside of her control, that piece she could craft. To this day, I'll never forget to make sure children have the opportunity to do that. No one wants to ask a, a child with a terminal illness what they want to be when they grow up. You know, it hurts us to think about, but we have to kind of rise above that and let them have those moments. I remember, Erin, when we had that conversation, one of her dreams or her goals, because she always had her list of goals, was to be in the school band. I mean, mm -hmm. she wanted to play an instrument. That's like, that was one of her goals. And so we couldn't get to band because, you know, it was hard to go to the clinic and band. But we're like, well, why, why can't you learn how to play an instrument? Like, we can make that happen. That was a big day because you were there with Dan and I and Emma in the clinic that day. And we ordered two ukuleles and then they both took ukulele lessons. And then she'd bring it to the clinic. She felt empowered, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember when she relapsed, we had to try a new chemo. It was just you, her, and I in the clinic. And she, she was like thinking really deeply. And you asked her what was wrong. And she said, I just... Like my body knows what to do with this chemo. I don't know that my body's going to know what to do with the next chemo. 
And so you told her, you said, your body's going to know what to do. You said, think about this like a line change in hockey. The, the, the idea is to get some new speed, some new energy, mix it up a little bit and ultimately score a goal, right? That was our, our goal was for the chemo to work. So don't worry that it's a different kind or brand of chemo. Don't worry about that. Your body will know what to do. It's a line change. And then she was like, oh, it's a line change. Okay. I remember talking to you afterwards. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, how did you pull that out? That was so great. And you're like, oh, I should be thanking you. Lauren's the only kid I could use line change, (laughs) hockey line change on, you know, giving her that analogy, something she understood, right? You changed our lives a million days, (laughs) but that day was one of them. Cancer is a different animal than some neurologically devastating conditions where the children aren't able to be engaged in the conversation and decision-making the way you're describing what Lauren was able to do and how you interacted directly with Lauren. Oftentimes with other conditions, we talk about Mm -hmm. how the clinician is really interfacing more with mom or dad. How did the three of you or the four of you, let's assume Amy and Dan are for the sake of this conversation, an entity. How did that triangle work? Parent, child, and doctor. Aaron, would you check in with Amy first and then have a conversation with Lauren? Amy, would you go to Aaron and say, this is what's happening that Lauren's worried about. Will you go talk to Lauren? How did that work? That is such an interesting dynamic. It often is one of the reasons we can get consulted because parents want to obviously be the advocate for their child as they should. But oftentimes the care team interprets that as parents limiting or somehow kind of creating obstacles for communication with their child and kind of limiting the disclosure of information. But we don't see it that way. And I I think Amy and Dan are a perfect example of that in, in that Amy and Dan know their child best as do any set of parents know their child best? And so how that information is to be conveyed, if we don't talk to the parents, I think we are foolhardy because we don't know what resonates with that child and what doesn't. I remember Amy would stand outside the door during rounds and, and she would give us a Lauren update. You know, this is where she is emotionally today. This is what she can handle. This is what she can't. And we would need that every day. Our team, I think, understood the importance of that more than anybody. Often we will reassure teams that parents that want to advocate or be the filter, if you will, are our ally. They're not our adversary. They're an important ally because it's not a matter of if we're going to engage that child, if that child is is able to be engaged, but how. And, And the how, we don't know. We don't have all those answers. The parents have those answers. And so how we engage that child when we engage that child. Timing is, is essential too. And so allying with our parents on that front is paramount. And Amy and Dan were, were extraordinary in their ability to be just incredibly insightful about when Lauren was ready for what information, how we were going to communicate it. You know, we stood shoulder to shoulder with them often in how we and when we communicated information. And that's our team. That was, I think, the oncologist as well. I would ask Amy, and I know that the oncology team also would ask Amy and Dan to kind of give us the path forward. 
you know, show us what that communication path looks like for Lauren, and then we can do it together. When you talk about that triangle, what I always uh, recall about Erin coming in was that she honored that the patient was Lauren. And so wherever Lauren is, and this is Erin's style, but wherever Lauren is, if she's on the couch and the couch sits higher, Erin sits on the chair. If she's in the chair, Erin crouches down. She elevates Lauren's position as just, it's an honor and you know, there's something about that. It's unspoken, but the body language there is like, you are the important person here. And I knew the relationship needed to be between Lauren. Lauren's the patient. I don't have cancer. Lauren is feeling all these things. But I also knew that Lauren's a, a quiet kid and an insightful kid and the gifted warrior. And I have to translate those worries so that Aaron and the oncology team can give her the best care. So there would be days where, you know, the rounds would start. And if she had a really bad night, you know, there'd be, I don't know, 12 people outside. And I'd come and I'm like, sorry, not everybody gets in today. Lauren and I talked about, like, she's Taylor Swift, and I'm Taylor Swift's manager. <laughs> and that Taylor Swift only sees, you know, important people and special people. So if it was boring or scary, that's not for Taylor. We do those kind of things in the, in the hallway. But Aaron was always exempt from that. I wanted to honor the relationship there and kind of take a back seat. But I also knew just as I was Lauren's interpreter, Aaron was my interpreter, Dan and my interpreter to the oncology team. So we needed each other to understand one another. Aaron needed me to understand Lauren. I needed Aaron to understand oncology. What, Amy, would you say you learned from working with Aaron, from watching Aaron work with Lauren, just being shoulder to shoulder with Aaron, taking care of your girl? Aaron knew what was important to Lauren. She spent just as much time with each visit talking about her symptoms as she did about last night's Blackhawks game. Those times were equal. And so she built this trust with Lauren, like, you know me, you know what's important to me. And Aaron, I always felt, and, and Dan does too, that the oncology team was solving for tomorrow and Aaron was solving for today. And sometimes that meant that like, I don't think some of the oncologists knew that Lauren would get chemo in the morning and go to school in the afternoon, but Aaron knew. Aaron knew what grade she was in. Aaron knew when Christmas break was. Like, Aaron knew she was in school. And one time the oncologist said something, and I'm like, you know, he said something, and I said, well, we're going to school in the afternoon. And he's like, she's still in school? I was like, yeah, she's been in school all year. Like, that's important to her. She's been in school all year long. But Aaron knew because she took the time to know. Erin, did you work at all directly with Emma? Mm -hmm. We had opportunities to talk to Emma, mostly in clinic, as I remember, less so when Lauren was hospitalized. But sometimes Amy and Dan would, you know, ask Emma, is, and Emma would know that Lauren had, would have a clinic day and she'd be there for the day. And there were days, I remember, they would let Emma just 
have a clinic day with Lauren rather than going to school. I just thought that was, again, so wonderful to give Emma the opportunity to spend the time with her sister that we all know she wanted to spend and that there were just days where Emma needed that. And Lauren probably needed it as well. I remember sitting with Emma. She was working with the art therapist, I believe, or child life therapist, and she was just drawing. And they were drawing, I feel like Emma was drawing heaven. She made a drawing of it. Emma made a drawing of it. And we talked about what heaven looked like to them. And they were able to compare notes. That just stands out to me. Erin told me, she said, we have to start having these conversations with Lauren. She's ready. You know, she's thinking about it. Even if you don't think she's thinking about it, she is. So you have to have a conversation about dying. And I said, there's just no, no way. I, am, I cannot have that conversation. And Erin said, you can. I know you can. And I said, when, when does this come up? Like, how, how am I going to know? I'm never going to know. I'm not going to recognize it. And Erin said, you will recognize it. And the day that Erin's talking about that they were in clinic. So I always brought each of our kids to clinic because we're spending so much time with our new family <laughs> that it was important for the other kids to, to meet the people we talked about, to see the sights, to smell the smells, to really know what Lauren's day was like. And it was always like when Emma came, it was bigger than second grade or bigger than third grade. You know, that stuff in the in the rear view mirror doesn't matter how many days of second grade you missed. It mattered that you were with your sister. And they were talking about heaven and dying. And Dan's work schedule is not as flexible as mine. And he happened to just be in the area and stopped by the clinic that day. And we started talking about it. Dan's mom died a year after we were married. And so they started asking him about his mom and what does he think about her and where does he think she is? And we talked about that and we talked about heaven. And then Aaron walked in and I was like mouthing, it's happening, like this is the day. And then you helped us expand that conversation. You told us what you think heaven looks like. And it was just like this conversation I was so scared to have so scared and it turned out to be a really empowering and beautiful conversation I was so glad you gave me the confidence that I would recognize it because I knew to look for it then and I think it was one of those one of those moments where you know we had to say a lot of I don't know yeah um, I don't know when that's going to happen and we could follow up that conversation with, but here's what I do know. I do know that you will not be alone, that you will be in a place that you feel most comfortable, that it will not hurt. And the rest, we will be with you the whole way and figure out as we go. She received that. I couldn't make it okay. I couldn't say that, you know, it wasn't going to happen, but to be able to reassure about the things you don't know and the things that you do know and what you'll do to minimize the uncertainty. That's all you can do. Amy, I'm definitely projecting here. So forgive me because that's very unprofessional to project, but I'm just the parent in me can't help but do that. Having this 
other adult have this very difficult conversation with your daughter and see that these things could actually be put into words, the blow your mind, painful conversation can actually be had and done in a way that doesn't blow everything up. It didn't break her. And didn't break her and didn't break you to watch. I don't know how to articulate what impact that would have, but I can imagine that it just really was like, oh. It was such a scary concept. And as with most things that you worry about, the worry is stronger than the thing sometimes, right? The worry is worse than when it actually happens. That was the case here. I was worried about this conversation. And honestly, when it happened, she was a long way away. I mean, it Mm -hmm. happened maybe halfway through her diagnosis, but it was liberating to have had that conversation. It didn't break her. And it's okay to talk about those things. Then we could bring it up from time to time at a deeper level. Lauren would talk about, you know, I'm having my big worry. And her big worry was she was dying. Those days would come and I would meet the team at the door and say it's a big worry day that she's having her big worry and then everybody knew that that's what she meant but we could take those big worry days and talk about it more deeply like what would help you feel better about this big worry I don't know it probably really awkward life but it was a a really liberating conversation it was it was beautiful (laughs) What I remember most about the time leading up to that was that I felt like it was holding Lauren back. It was keeping her from embracing the other aspects of her life that I knew brought her joy. But until we slayed that dragon, until we confronted that monster, she was going to be paralyzed by it. It's a little bit like a surprise surgery, right? Like she never knew when it was going to Right, right. You telling her you're not going to be alone. It's not going to hurt. We're going to be there with you. That gave her some sense of, okay, I'll trust you guys and I can go think about something else. I think you're right. I think it consumed a lot of her thought. It's not often, again, it speaks to how extraordinary Lauren was in this journey that she, yes, she had her worries, but she was also able to engage about it. And you created the space for that. I wish that we had those opportunities in every case, but we don't. And Lauren and you guys just as a physician, one of my passions is to help comfort and guide families through that concept and that conversation. And and when we're able to do that in a way that actually empowers the child and it makes them actually, I hate to use the word better, but I feel like Lauren was better after I personally just felt relieved. And I think she was relieved because I felt like we could now get on with life in a way that she wanted to. She was about eight and a half when we were having these conversations. I have to say one other thing, and maybe maybe you'll ask this, but what was also extraordinary about Amy and Dan is that they demonstrated, they were an example of parenting through serious illness. And when I say parenting, I mean the verb parenting. When our children are hurting, when our children are are struggling, your first instinct is to try to make it all better, 
try to ease whatever struggle they're having or any surrounding struggles that they may be having. And while Amy and Dan certainly did that, they also recognized the peripheral struggles that were still worth having as a growing child and that they parented, they set limits, and they created a structure and a sense of normalcy for Lauren that was in parallel with her siblings. One of my favorite quotes, Amy Graver quotes, was, I don't want you to be that kid. Like, I don't want you to be that indulged child that's just out of control and doesn't have limits and is consumed by their illness. And Amy and Dan just put it all, you know, in its, certainly gave it its proper due and it consumed enough of their lives for sure. But they always helped Lauren stay grounded with a mind of how to give back. Lauren would just get presents and presents and presents delivered to the hospital room. And I remember one time you and I were kind of trying to triage like, okay, what can she have now? What are we going to give away? What is Lauren going to give away so that she has that experience of giving to someone else and what that feels like and having the sense like, okay, when is it just too much? You can't be that kid. That's my, that's my rule. Yeah. It has been my impression, Erin, that Amy is an AP parent, just from <laughs> other things she's participated in for CPN when she's like given examples of what she said or did, whether it's around the twin factor or the just, I was like, I would never have thought of that. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. There's the thought and then how Amy says the thought or writes about the thought. It's like, yeah. oh my God. I remember being at the dinner table and she was really nauseous from chemo. So every smell, every, everything is just getting to her. And so she's in the family room and we're in the kitchen and we're all eating dinner that someone delivered to us. And Lauren said, can you all go eat somewhere else? And I walked over and I saw everyone's eyes roll like, <laughs> oh, she's going to make us like, we're going to go eat in the bathroom. Like, what is mom going to do? I just walked over and I said, where are you sitting right now? And she goes on the couch. I'm like, what is this room called? And she said, the family room. I said, it's not called the Lauren room. It's the family room. If you don't want to smell <laughs> any smells, and I'm sorry, go upstairs, go where you can't smell the smells. This is dinner smells. Sorry, we need to eat. And then I came back with like, oh, maybe I broke her, but, <laughs> but she didn't break. She was okay. That's really awesome normalcy. There's been so much powerful stuff that you've said. Is there more about the humanity between the three of you? Well, six gravers and one doctor, the seven of you that I haven't asked you about that's pertinent to this. I don't think we need to focus in on the end of Lauren's life, but if there is something that happened towards Lauren's end of life or at Lauren's end of life where the role Aaron played with you, Amy, or with Lauren is something that you want to name, please do. Towards the end of Lauren's life, when we ran out of chemo options and the move was to go to palliative chemo, we needed to transfer to a different hospital. So we moved from our suburban hospital to the hospital downtown Chicago. And that was really scary because we had, our safety net was gone. You know, we didn't know anyone there. We had had these three years of relationships. I remember Aaron had reached out to the palliative team there and the oncology team there 
And when we got there, they knew us already. We were welcomed in. I could tell they had read the notes ahead of time. When Lauren went on hospice, the hospice doctor came and Aaron and I talked afterwards and she said, how did Lauren do? And I said, they, they didn't click. They just didn't click. It's okay. They just didn't click. And Aaron said, if it's okay with you, I'd like to be her hospice doctor. And so it was Aaron till the end. And uh, when I told Lauren that, you know, the other doctor wouldn't be coming back, but it would just be you, like, just like, oh, finally, like, all right, you, you knew what I needed. So I was glad to be able to do that, but you, I mean, I couldn't have done it, obviously, without your all. so. That time is so sacred to me that I had a hard time professionally letting go of it or giving it over to someone else. And, you know, this was a trusted colleague of mine who I love, but I worried that they were just not, the personalities weren't going to jive. And um, yeah, this doc was super gracious and just knew that Lauren and I had a special relationship. Those days and weeks, I just feel are some of the most sacred in life and in work and why I do this work. When I get to be involved in that aspect of care, I always try to be able to do that because I just find it very, very important for me as a human being. It made, it made all the difference. So Lauren was going into fourth grade and she died halfway through fourth grade, but she had drawn a self-portrait of herself in fourth grade. So this is after 200 weeks of chemo weeks, like some weeks were five, five days of chemo surgeries her port was accessed i don't know hundreds of times and she drew this self-portrait and i really give credit to aaron you have to see what she wrote about herself so it's a kid who doesn't know she's dying of cancer and her mom and dad aren't ready to deal with the fact that she's dying of cancer but you just have to see the words that she wrote about herself it says adventurous the biggest word is brave bold, dependable, kind, smart, athletic, shy. Easygoing. She had the black ones in bold and then wrote in pink. So funny, honest, hardworking, quiet, courageous, respectful, calm. It was just an extraordinary picture. So she's in her Blackhawks hat there and her favorite color is turquoise. So that's why she has those hearts there. She's got a Blackhawks necklace on that when we went to the convention, she struck up a conversation with someone, they gave her that necklace. But that's how she felt about herself. And I think so much of that really, I mean, Aaron gave us all the tools in the toolbox for that. So Aaron gave us the, let's get the pain under control. Let's get your appetite back. Let's have conversations about what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to play an instrument? Do you, what do you want to do? Aaron gave us the psychiatric access, like the access to a psychiatrist that, you know, Aaron made one phone call one day and we got three new medications. So let me just tell you about that day a little bit. 
we're still in the old clinic. So it was during her recurrence and she was so nauseous. She's just vomiting all the time. And so they put her on TPN, on nutritional pack. And they were upping the hours. She was on her nutritional pack. She'd get home from school. I'd connect her to the nutritional pack. And she had eight hours of this. And then she'd go to bed. And she was sleeping with Dan and I. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, she'd throw up everything that was in the nutritional pack. And then we'd start the day all over. So when she was diagnosed, she weighed 65 pounds. She was now down to about 41 pounds. And we had been in the clinic the day before. I said, can you do anything? Like the girls had just, we had just redone their room. She didn't want to sleep in their room because she was throwing up. She was embarrassed. She would make it smell, just, you know, would wreck the whole vibe of the room. So she was with us. I said, can you do anything? And they're like, well, we're going to have to increase the, you know, maybe we'll do 10 hours or 12 hours. And I'm like, how is she going to wear this to school? And they're like, she's in school. I'm like, oh, yes, she's in school. And so I pulled Aaron aside. I'm like, I'm going to lose my mind. They're just myopic. All they think about is cancer. If we could get the vomiting to stop, then maybe I could get her to eat something because I know they're going to talk about a feeding tube. I know they are. I can feel it. You know, then the just not feeling good and her worries were sky high during that time. And I'll never forget. You're like, I'll be right back. You walked down the hallway. You came back. You gave us a prescription for erythromycin. You called and got an anti-anxiety medicine for her. And then we went on medical marijuana that day. One conversation with Erin turned into three new prescriptions. The erythromycin worked that night. That night, she didn't vomit. The next night, so 24 hours, she doesn't vomit. 48 hours, she's back in her room. Within a week, she doesn't have to have the TPN anymore. We went on uh, her Make-A-Wish trip, went on her Disney cruise. She gained four pounds on that cruise, 10% of her body weight. She came back and continued to gain weight. And she got up to 56 pounds because of Erin. And then draws that picture of herself. So that day, like, that's another day you changed our lives. I'll never forget that day. I just could not get them to listen. And you said, look. They'll deal with cancer. I'm her pain doctor. Let me help. And, and you helped. I just feel very, very fortunate that it worked. Sometimes it doesn't always work. And we're having to try a number of different things and there's trial and error. And, and I remember they said, you have some things to think about. And I knew that meant feeding too. But then we got rid of the TPN altogether. And yeah. Yeah. Thanks to you. And if we think about how we feel when we're in pain or we're nauseous or we're feeling awful, our emotions are magnified. You know, when Lauren felt crappy, sure, she's going to worry more because then it becomes real and scary. I have to say it was, I hate to use the word luck, but for whatever reason, that magic combination worked on the first try. <laughs> I'll go with Aaron magic. <laughs> with Aaron Magic. That is a brilliant example of the impact of a palliative mindset and then just the domino effect of what happens when pain is under control. I think the rest of oncology saw that, right? So when Lauren was diagnosed, 
palliative was consulted, but not, it wasn't always there. We only got palliative because I complained about her pain and they were like, give her to somebody else, like, you know, but didn't you tell me, Erin, that now palliative is because of Lauren and the impact that palliative had for her, that palliative is consulted on all new oncology cases? Yeah. I have to emphasize that too. I mean, you're so blessed in a career to have those patients that you really connect with. And Lauren was certainly that for me, but I am one of a group and we all knew Lauren and we, I think we all collaborated well to make sure, you know, we were all on the same page and we all had a consistent approach to her. But as a result, our team is consulted for all new diagnoses with that oncology group. It's been a really positive collaboration, almost to the fault. Like, okay, guys, like, you know how to treat nausea. Like, remember, <laughs> you don't have to call us every time someone throws up. I think that Lauren's case was one case that really showed them how impactful our involvement can be. What a legacy, right? It is a legacy. It really uh, is. Think oh, about the huge. impact it's having on all the other kids and their yeah. families. That is. And, and and we told each other we would make it better for the next family in line. Yeah, she really has. She made it better. Yeah. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.